never know where life is going to take you. Some people know exactly where they want to be and go for it full throttle. Others just stumble upon it organically, and then there are those who just follow their intuition. This is a podcast about reaching your personal best through resilience, motivation, and passion. This is Mark My Words. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Mark My Words. I'm Mark Schmidt, and this is the podcast where we talk to entrepreneurs about their journey and career transition to entrepreneurship. And today, I have a guest who hails from the country of my all-time favorite band. They've literally been my favorite band since I can remember I even have one of their albums up, which, of course, is ABBA. And I know, I'm sure Lena hears plenty about ABBA being from uh, Sweden, but I will not get into that too much, hopefully. Uh, Today, we're really going to get into what Lena Red Cow does, and we're going to talk about her journey from being a student here in the, in the United States, then to the UK, and then to the founding of her global mobility and relocation company called Immersion. And I've got a little blurb here. So this is actually from a message that Lena sent me. And her company founded, and oh God, I'm like stumbling over my words. Let me try that again. So she's been a part of this entrepreneurial journey for 26 years. She founded the mo- a global mobility firm in Sweden, 1996, which is Immersion, and they welcome talent for work permits, compliance, practical assistance around housing, schools, and even enjoying life. And she has survived three major recessions and a pandemic. And after stumbling over some of those words, I welcome you, Lena, to mark my words. How are you doing today? Um, great. Thank you so much for the introduction. Um, I'm thrilled to be here, and it will be a really fun hour here together. And I, I certainly hope so. So we will have some fun, and we're going to talk about your journey, which goes back a few years. And right off the bat, I want to ask about you coming to the States and obviously you seem to have like a real love for your home country. And I can't blame you for that. I've never been there, but I, you know, it's very beautiful there. And you somehow decided to come to the States to study. What prompted that decision? Um, It actually started much earlier and it started, my father was, uh, or he is Norwegian, And when he was young, he was actually recruited to MIT when he was 17. So he took the boat, Queen Elizabeth II, to Boston and studied at MIT. So he really uh, had a great time 
and during those years and always had this love for the U.S. He went back, he was quite nomadic uh, in nature. So he lived in France, he lived in Paris, he lived in Vienna. He kept on traveling all through Europe for quite some time, but he was also uh, well-educated. So he um, started working and he, at that time, it, it was pretty grim in, the, in Norway after the World War II. They hadn't really caught up yet. So most ambitious Norwegians would end up in Sweden. And that's where he met my mom. Or actually they met in Austria skiing, but they lived here. Um, and then we moved to Tunisia. I was born and we lived in Switzerland and you know, we kept moving. And when he had an opportunity to get a job in the US, he jumped on that. And it was one of those fantastic relocations. And I didn't know this would become my life afterwards, but we were so well taken care of. They moved over our horses, uh, dogs. We had a private jet. They did everything for us. I mean, the welcome couldn't have been nicer. We also, the whole family got green cards. So we were, it was really the red carpet. Um, I went to Skidmore College, which is upstate New York, and I spent four years there and then moved to the, what we would say moved to the city. So that was New York and lived in Manhattan and worked there and had just the most fantastic time. And But after seven years, I was ready to go back to Sweden and at least try it. So I had left Sweden as a teenager and I moved back as an adult. And then I um, sort of went back, um, so a little bit back towards the UK. So I got an MBA in London at, at Webster University, which is a US university in St. Louis. And they had a London campus. So that was really fun. Uh, so when I came back to Sweden. And what happened, and I just told this story last night, and I don't really talk about this very often, but uh, I went to the movies and I saw a, a movie that is really not my cup of tea, and it was called Stargate. It's like one of those, I don't know, Star Wars. It wasn't Star Wars, it was Stargate. And it was a huge theater. We were in the middle and the middle, in the very middle of the row, so I couldn't get out. And I was sitting there and I was thinking to myself, I really wanted to do, um, you know, become an entrepreneur, start my own company, do something that I really enjoyed. And I didn't know exactly what that would be. And then I was thinking to myself how Sweden was far less um, modern that I would say than in the US. I came from a really fast paced New York City lifestyle to, the old world, things were slow, people were not open to new ideas. And I was thinking to myself how hard it was to not understand the society I lived in. So I called around to all the big corporations and I said, what do you do with your expats? And they said, we have a huge problem with our expats. We don't know how to support them. And I said, well, why don't, I'm thinking about writing a book for people that moved to Sweden. And this book was called The Newcomer's Practical Handbook. And I brought in some, uh, lots of tips explaining things. And, and one of the thing pieces was bringing in Anderson tax consultants. 
and they did a write-up on what expats should think about. And so I published uh, three editions of this book. It was very popular. The last edition was 10,000 copies. And um, then Anderson Tax Consultants called me and said, hey, can you take care of our expats? And I was like, um, well, I wouldn't know how to do that. And they said, well, you've wrote a book. Do you know more than anybody else? And I was like, hmm, all right, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, and um, let me try. And that's how the whole global mobility started. So already from the very, very beginning, I did uh, immigration. I started in my hallway. So I put a little desk in my hallway and I got a long, long cord because this was in 1995 to my phone. And then I walked around in my tiny apartment and I started a company. And now 20, whatever, six years later, it's, you know, it's grown. And I was extremely fortunate. It was tough times in the beginning. It was really, it's not easy to start a company. And there's a lot of things to learn along the way that I didn't know, but I had a good background. I had a good marketing education. So I, and I came from the US, so I was very outgoing and I was not afraid to ask people for things and open doors. I was far more outgoing than most Swedes would ever be. So that really was to my advantage. And yeah, so, so that's, how, that's how it started. Wow. So it wasn't like moving to a new country made you develop a passion for this industry you're in now. It was really just seeing a movie, writing a book, and the next thing you know, you have a company. Wow, that's amazing. So moving from New York City, and as you can imagine, for moving anywhere from New York City will be a slower pace. And that definitely happened to me too. So I found it very, very frustrating for a long time. I didn't think, you know, whenever you ask in Europe, say, well, this isn't really working. Can we do it another way? The answer is always no. And I'd be like, but, but there are better ways of doing this. So could we try? And the answer would again be absolutely no. So that was, uh, it was quite frustrating and I didn't, it was a difficult move and it was my language. I had friends here, I grew up here. I did know, um, you know, lots of people. That, and that's why I thought if this is tough for me, this must be extremely difficult for somebody who doesn't even have the language. So, um, and, and, and that's where it came from. I, I wanted to facilitate, make it easier for, for other people and also break the mold. And that, so that's what I did. I, I came up with new solutions, new ways of doing things that was also more better adapted to, to Americans. And Americans was my, you know, my first big group of people. And um, I would say that by doing this job and writing that book, I turned every single stone in Stockholm and um, that made me love my city that I had been a little hesitant about. So how do you break the mold? How do you break tradition? That's kind of a 
big question, but how, and for your experience, how did you get around that and maybe get a few more people to say yes than no? Well, I think it's really um, finding the positive things. You know, it's like mind flip. And Okay, I'm getting a message. Background noise. Oh, background noise. Yeah, I've been hearing the background noise. That's okay. So you're going to go close the door. Um, okay, so Lena's going to go close the door here. You can go ahead, and uh, I'm going to keep talking. And so while I am watching her do that, you can... Oh, she came back so fast, I was going to do a little bit of advertising, but Lena came right back. So... Yeah, I usually try to fill those gaps by talking about people's websites, but uh, you came right back. <laughs> so, it wasn't that far. But, well, it just gives the show more character. So we're going to pick... Well, it's the work from home. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> it's Saturday, so they're preparing for dinner. And they're quite gotcha. loud. So, but anyway, yeah, so... Um, it's there's a notion, and I think it is a Dutch in origin, and I just recently heard of this, and I didn't know it existed, but I think this is what I did. It's the flip thinking. So what if this is what if this was easy? What if this could easily work? What is the benefit for you to help my client with something? What you know, so just to really um, twist things or, you know, look at the positive things and the win-win situations. And that wasn't exactly the Swedish psyche. So, you know, massaging that kind of attitude with other people was something I got good at. Wow. So you basically, I mean, on top of starting an entrepreneurial company in a time when that wasn't really like a popular thing to do. You also had the challenge of actually changing attitudes. So, and of course, 26 years later, you are still standing and doing so well. And I'd be curious to know what has changed. I mean, obviously technology has changed and social media, the internet has put you on the map so much more, but what else has changed over that period of time? Um, many things, just going from my hallway to having employees, having to manage a team, to manage an office. But I would say that the biggest difference is when, when I started, I wrote a book because it was paper and you printed things and you handed it to somebody. And from that perspective, we, we were an authority. You know, we had the truth. This is the truth. And I've written it down and you can read about it here. And it took only a few years. We, we had one of the first websites in our industry. We're, we're really on the forefront with many things. And for people who don't know, um, I'll just explain a little bit what a relocation and immigration company is doing. Uh, 
What we have done since day one is we help people get work permits. So we deal with authorities, immigration agencies, etc. And we make sure we take care of everything that happens outside the office. So the HR team will bring people in and get them a desk and a computer and you know introduce them to their teams and let them know what what's expected. We take care of everything else. We make sure we, that they go to the local registrations, that they're signed up for medical services, that their kids go to school, that it's a warm welcome. And we become their best friends for that sort of first period they are in Sweden. And we get all the questions and the frustrations and the celebrations. It's a really, really fun job. You get very close to people in a short amount of time. And then of course, the whole idea is that they should fly out on their own and, and uh, you know thrive. And our ambition is that it should be the happiest time in their lives. So when they leave Sweden, they will become ambassadors that go out in the world and tell other people what a great experience they had. So, so that's what a relocation company um, is doing. And then came the internet. So first we had you know, a ton of information. The book basically went online, but so did a lot of other stuff. And as we all know, doing an internet search is now you, you get absolutely overwhelmed with information and you have to be really good at evaluating the source. So I feel that after in, in the past probably 15 years, now it's, uh, we, we still have that website, it's behind password protected pages and, and people who read it can trust that, well, these guys probably know what they do because they've been doing it for a long time. So we can trust that they are, um, you know, know what they're saying and, and this should be correct. However, with the internet, there are so many, especially in the expat groups, and it's easy to misunderstand things. And, you know, all, there's one a large nationality and they have their own, with their school, um, their own guide that says you can't buy rubber boots and Wellingtons and, and uh, raincoats after September. So that's the first thing you have to do when you move to Sweden. So when you tell them, oh, you know, you should go on a boat trip this weekend and give them tips but when they come in August and September, they're like, we can't, we have to go buy rubber boots because Sweden runs out of them. And I tell them it's a rainy country and it gets cold and you can rest assured that you will be able to buy all these things <laughs> also in September, October and around the year because it's just stuff that everybody needs. But so now we have to sort of take out misunderstandings out of um, the internet. So we're not authorities, we are clarifiers or facilitators more. So do you, let me see if I have myself understanding. So are you kind of like a third party that works with companies where people like you're notified like, hey, so-and-so's coming to this country. They may need some help getting adjusted. Is that basically what your role is? Is that basically how it works? Yes, I would say so. So let's say um, Coca-Cola, for instance, just because it's a brand name. Um, 
let's say they're bringing in five people or 10 people because they are actually setting up an IT project for a supply chain um, project. And they're bringing in, let's say five or 10 software engineers from India to do so. One of them, as soon as they are signed on, they will call us and say, can you make sure they have work permits and can you welcome them? And they also need a place to live. Wow. And then we say, we'll, and then we'll, we'll take the ball, we'll run with it. And we will liaise with the person that is moving and we will report back to HR. Wow, that's simple. <laughs> it is, it is. I mean, I, have, I must say, I thought I invented the industry. So, but of course I didn't because even though I just wrote a book, I, I thought I, I knew that the service was needed. I just didn't know I would be the one doing it because I wanted to be by coastal like my parents who split their time between the US in the winter and Europe in the summer. And you can't have a company and live in two, two continents. Um, but I didn't know that there was an industry like this when I started doing this. But it turns out it, it does. And of course, it's American. So it's the US military that started this way back when, after World War II, when they were sending people, spies and you know observers around the globe. They, that's when the relocation industry was born. So it's actually, my company is about 26 years old, but the industry is about 20, 30 years older than that. So it's probably started in the 50s a little bit, but in the 60s. And there are huge military um, uh, stations in Germany and in Iceland and all over the place that is American or NATO. And, and so just like the internet comes from the US Army. You know, whenever I meet people like you, who it almost kind of sounds like one thing led to another, and they stumble into this really awesome career path, I'm just like, man, that is definitely not the way my life has worked. I feel like I've had to work so hard and have had to plan and think and like, what's my passion? What do I want to do? And all that stuff. And it just is so remarkable to me how easy it appears to be sometimes for some people and I one thing I do want to ask if you weren't doing this do you have any idea what you would have wound up doing um well when I I do I wanted to be an entrepreneur but I'll tell you it takes many years to be an overnight success so starting a company is very difficult you make many mistakes. There's a lot to, there are a lot of technicalities to running a company that you just don't know until you do it. Uh, it was also an industry that wasn't at all present in Sweden. It didn't exist. And we are the land of Ikea. We, we go to Ikea, we had a flat box and we put it together. There's no service here. There's no service, uh, customer service. It's people. And this goes way back in history to the 19th or 17th century when they split up all the land because you would have the church in the middle and then it would be 
little slots going out from the church and people would walk around and walk over each other's plots of land and they would all cooperate to make it, you know, and share the plows and things like that. So it was very collaborative. And then they decided, they realized this is not an efficient way of handling the, you know, agriculture. So they traded these slots and they became much, much bigger. And then they would only see each other once a week in church. And um, this resulted in less collaboration and also a lot of sayings like no man is an eye of a, a strong man will handle his own thing. Alone is strong. And so that's really fostered Swedes. We think we have to manage and do everything ourselves. And one, I had a really enlightening and fun conversation with a British guy who came and worked for an industry in Sweden. He said, these Swedes, they drive me crazy because they're a jack of all trades, master of none. Because they, you would never want to show that I can't do something. Everybody becomes quite apt at many things. You don't call a carpenter because you, that's not needed. How can you not you know, paint a wall or whatever in a way that Americans would just never even think that I can paint my wall. Why should you? You know, there are pe people that are good at that and you, them, and you get it over with. So, we have two dogs. Yeah, you, <laughs> sounds like your dog has something to say about all this. <laughs> He's probably always asking to be let in. <laughs> yeah, I no, I understand my cats would do the same thing except I guess they wouldn't bark. <laughs> but uh, continue. But, but it was uh, many, many sleepless nights. It was very difficult. And Sweden was not ready for a service company. And this is purely service. So when we said, you know, it's, we have a, a huge housing shortage. And that's the only reason this was possible to get off the ground at all. So we've had a housing shortage in Stockholm since 1905. And yes, that's 116 years ago. Wow. And it's not getting better. And that was such an incredible headache that even companies who would hated to hand something over and paying somebody else to do it, because of course their own staff is free of charge. So they didn't see the opportunity cost with burdening people by doing these things themselves. So but the housing just couldn't be done by a foreigner that came here. And I had definitely had a problem when I moved back. I moved six times in 18 months because it was just the way you had to do it. it and I didn't have a kind company to support me. Um, so, so that was how it got started. So it was a big focus. And then sort of the other services came along as you know, time went by. And the Americans pushed and the Americans and the Brits, they knew from their home countries that when somebody moves, you take care of them. So they would demand a relocation company. So it was really a pull uh, or a push service that where the Swedes had to step up to the plate and understand it's done differently. This is professional. And one of my early contacts uh, and, and the, the older HR, they knew that this was such a time saver for them. And they invited me and I was quite young and you know I, they knew so much more than I did, but they would invite me to their forums. 
And then since I did this on a practical everyday basis, I would have something to bring to the table. And they were not, uh, you know, they were smart people. So they knew that this is a lifesaver for us. It is a great service. It's a great service anywhere in the world. And if you move with a company, this is something that makes life a lot easier. So, um, and, and they did a survey on one of the Swedish multinationals to, and they had daughter companies all over the world. And probably I think it's over 50 countries. And they did a survey saying to all their daughter companies, which would typically be young guys that they sent, you know, to all continents, all four corners of the world. How much of your time was spent handling practical? They had three-year assignments. How much time did you spend the first year on practical things, the second year and the third year? And the first year, 60% of their time in some countries um, was spent just getting a bank account. Or, you know, in some of these countries, it was actually very dangerous. And they, they needed security training for sheer survival. Um, the second year, they worked on about a 40% capacity. And the last year, that's when, you know, they came up to be productive people. And that was the last year before they were sent somewhere else. And when they saw the results, they realized this is a complete waste of human capital. It's a waste of resources. We need to get them uh, relocation help so they can get up and running. And that's the whole purpose. Get up you know, hit the ground running, do your job, don't spend six hours a day trying to get a phone company to hook up. You know, at that time it was just a phone, it was barely internet, it was still dial up. But, uh, and that's kind of how it started, which was great. But it was not easy and it took, it took years. So um, definitely uh, couldn't afford to go to the movies. And I had extra jobs on the side for probably two or three years. So during that time, what did you have to do? What were some of the extra jobs? Um, I did market research. I did uh, um, questionnaires. I did, I sold um, on the phone. I was like phone salesperson for towels. Nice. <laughs> hey, we I all know. need towels. It, yep. I was pretty good at that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and it was probably, a, uh, you know, bonus based. So, uh, and I just did what I had to. And I didn't spend any money. And I was so passionate about what I was doing. And it was so much fun. But it was also, I was really nervous. And it took years. And in 95, we had, in Sweden, we already had major issues. We had had a huge financial crisis. It was a bubble that burst. It was only in Sweden. So it wasn't like today. Not everybody, not every country was in trouble, but Sweden was. We had had 500% marginal rent interest rates. People had had to leave their homes. Their, uh, unemployment was massive. It was really quite depressing. And it took a few years. And to start a company in a recession, a deep recession, is not such a bad thing because you learn to work with what you have and not waste any money, not waste time, be very, very efficient with what you do. 
and not have high expectations. So that, that was good. And then I think the first crisis was the dot-com crisis, which was in 2002. And at that time point, we had gotten pretty established. I had some employees, I, I had an office and um, I knew, I, and, and we had no money. I mean, we lived, but almost month to month still. And I had to, I didn't have a salary for a year. I took out a mortgage on my apartment and told the bank that I was redoing the kitchen, which I didn't. And that was the money that I put into the company and myself for that year. And I learned a really, really important lesson. And that was um, put your own mask on first because I paid my employees uh, because I wanted to be a great employer and I was, but I wasn't very good to myself. So it was hard for me. Uh, and it took many years to recover from that, uh, not having a, a salary. And the second thing I knew was to be prepared for the worst and to have a company that, on really solid footing. And there have been several uh, recessions since then. And it was, I think it's 2008, uh, the subprime loans definitely hit Sweden. Many people lost their jobs uh, because of that. And then, uh, we, the, the crisis that we're having now. I think we might have had another one between, uh, maybe not, I guess the pandemic. And, and we have been extremely well prepared. So in 2008, we were in a situation where we didn't have to have a single assignment for a year and we could still pay all of our bills. So we decided to spend that year by developing things, really get learning, uh, getting, putting together template marketing, etc. We, we did a quality seal or all sorts of things that you just don't have time for when the wheels turn very quickly, which they had done. And without even noticing it, we grew by 35% in the financial crisis, when, which was very tough on everybody else. And ever since we've had very solid finances as the foundation of the company. And that was the learning lesson from, from uh, 2002. Wow. So what was the turning point then from you being able to throw in the towel on the selling towels, so to speak, and just go off completely on your own and focus on your uh, entrepreneurial endeavors. When did that happen? What was the turning point? Um, I'd say it took three or four years to learn certain things like the relocation is very seasonal. And it was at that time, the companies would bring in people would be typical like Philips, uh, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, um, American Express, those kinds of companies. And their recruitment year would be very, very similar to a school year. And people would, uh, and they brought lots of families. It's a great country with, to live with families. And they would bring, they would recruit during spring and then they would all go on vacation and the new family and the new uh, talent would move in summer, which meant that we had probably 70% of our business over the course of 12 weeks in the summer. 
And it's not easy to recruit people who are really good, uh, hard workers, smart, that want to work. They're only 12 weeks. We have, you know, a slim chance of seeing the sun. So, and also the labor law is very clear that in Sweden, you have to allow four weeks of vacation during the months of June, to July, and August, which is peak season. So it was really, really tough. And I obviously didn't have time off and worked extremely hard. So it, it took, but when I understood that seasonality and changed, you know, I, I instead started loving winter, started skiing a lot more because I knew that that was the time of year when I would be able to have some time off. Well, first of all, I wish this country had a mandatory four weeks of vacation in the summer. That would be amazing. And it looks like you have a visitor behind you. And uh, <laughs> secondly... Oh, yes, Yes. Oh, wow. You, this, this episode's been full of surprises. I love it. So... <laughs> The funny thing is I work from home, but during the week. And then I'm, you know, rarely get visitors. But there are a few more people. (laughs) So is that your daughter I just met? That was my daughter. She will turn 14 in a month. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So good thing that I actually held on to my thought for the next thing I wanted to ask you, which kind of relates to what you were talking about, which is with all the things that you've said about Sweden, and unfortunately I haven't been there yet. It's on my list. I really, really want to go there someday. Again, if nothing else, to see the Ava Museum. Again, I'm a huge fan. It is so much fun. You have Have to Have you been there? Yes. I took my whole team. Once and we all dressed up and and we went there and it was karaoke and it's really well put together. It's a ton of fun. So I really can recommend it. And like... he's starting a pop house. I just heard about this on the radio this morning. Um, and I'm not exactly, it's an arena with, and it's going to be a lot of live concerts. So that will be fun. And everything yeah. they do, they do with such passion and care and yeah. love for music. So I'm sure it's going to be great. Yeah, I mean, I've been a fan since I was like three or four years old. Parents used to listen to an A-track in our Trans Am all the time. And yeah, I just became really fascinated with them and their music and the fact that I know more than just like Dancing Queen probably makes you happy. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm a huge, huge fan, and I, I probably should make a podcast about them. But Do I you, got. Have you seen the Mamma Mia movies? Um, Mamma Mia, I've I've seen like pretty much everything. Like I'm a huge, huge fan. So there is a band in uh, in the UK when I lived there and studied. That's called Bjorn again. Yep. I've seen Have them. you seen them? Yep. I'm, like I said, I'm a very, very big fan. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I could go on and on about this. but Me too. <laughs> fantastic. 
Well, yeah. getting getting back to the question is uh, you talked about the laws with vacation and what winners are like, and there are some other things you talked about early on. How do you like sell Sweden to people that are, you know, looking to move and how do you sell it to be like, you know, this is a great place to be. This, how, how do you do that? Uh, there's so many good things about Sweden. I think uh, one of the amazing things is it's uh, the fifth largest country in Europe. And if you turn its, from, its tip, you actually reach Northern Africa. So there's, we have a huge amount of space and many climate zones uh, all the way up. You have nature, you have a lot of space, you have a lot of waters, we have 10,000 lakes. Um, and what brings people here, if you think of it, the, the Netherlands and Belgium, it's very, very tightly populated, lots of people in a small space, and they just love coming up here and go to a cottage in the woods and they're happy. But we have this all so close. And Stockholm is the, the capital in Sweden, and this is where everything comes. And it's obviously not like a big city in the US because there are only 10 and a half million people in Sweden. And actually, in, I think it's a, only 10 or 15 years that we have grown by an additional 25%. Most people who had moved from other countries. So we've had fast growth um, in the population. But with uh, th this, this is still a city that you can walk everywhere. If you like walking, obviously you can bike. It's easy to get around. It's uh, fairly safe. You have four very clear seasons. It's a friendly place. It used to be safer than it is. Um, it's a friendly place. And when you work here, we have very flat structures. There is no uh, uh, need to know basis. Everybody gets the same information. It's very open, it's very transparent. And we have a very innovative climate. And that is because, or one of the reasons would probably be we have a strong welfare state. So when I uh, started my company, I got a little subsidies. It was uh, $5,000 approximately. That, and that was the starting capital, which is also what you needed to, to have a limited company. And every, anybody can actually get that, which is great. And that, you know, if you are careful with your money, you can actually live on that for quite some time especially if you're young and don't have a family. And you can't fall through completely. You will, even if you fail utterly, you will not end up on a, a, under a bridge. You know, there is a safety net, a social safety net, and you can always start over. So that there's a sense of security there. So and because of this, we have a lot of startups and we have very good um, universities where ideas uh, are startup. So we work with many, many startup companies and people want to come here and be part of that. So Spotify was uh, founded down the streets. We have, and that's just one example of many, but they're probably, it's probably one of the most uh, well-known one because it's, 
a consumer company. And there's a really vibrant tech scene. And what you have here that you don't necessarily have in Anglo-Saxon or, or German companies, you have direct access to management. Even if you're a young person, you're on a first name basis, you will be invited to meetings also with senior management. So it's a very flat structure. And if you are a go-getter and well-educated and you want to be part of a passionate movement, there are plenty of opportunities. If you want to work hard and develop as a person, you can do that, but you can also have a family and actually see them. And you don't spend a great deal of uh, time commuting. So when we have people moving from Sao Paulo, when you have to take helicopters from rooftops to get anywhere because traffic is so extremely heavy and you spend four hours a day in a car, that is just not the way it works here. Everybody also will take the bus and that goes from managing director of huge companies to five-year-old children that go to daycare. Wow. Well, that, that sounds great to me. I think you got me sold. But unfortunately, <laughs> it a, it's a good place to live. Unfortunately, I think my roots are pretty uh, firmly entrenched here. But hey, you never know. Uh, so one thing that I want to ask, you started talking a lot about other entrepreneurs and you've been doing it for such a long time. Do you ever talk to other uh, up-and-coming entrepreneurs? Do you have any advice for anybody trying to become an entrepreneur? Absolutely. I do help a lot of young entrepreneurs, and I really love doing that. Um, I think there is uh, there are a few things. Um, I have a very conservative view on business and running a business, and I'm sure there are better and smarter ways of doing a lot of things. But to me, if somebody wants to pay for what you're doing, you have a business. If you have to give away a lot and invest in getting clients, then you don't have a, you know, the day you say to your clients, well, now we want to charge you, they will not be interested. So, and that's what I, why I, I think we see a lot of apps, for instance. There are so many new apps that come out that have fantastic, phenomenal things. But I do hear all the time, especially from young people, you know, I, I think we I have an example. I think it was like, it was a calendar. It was called Sunshine or something along that. Do you remember? It's probably 15 years ago or something, 10 maybe. It was a great calendar. People loved it. And when they started charging, they didn't have any customers left. So they didn't, hadn't done their entire research. You know, is this something people would like to pay for? But, but that is a different economy. But if you're in the service sector, you will need to have a service. You can start a company and get people to sign up if you deliver bread to them in the morning and if you take their dog out. Everybody will think it's a great service, but are you willing to pay? You have to find your price point. And you also have to learn pretty quickly. Sweden is very, very high taxes. And I thought, like so many other entrepreneurs, I completely underestimated how much money actually goes 
doesn't come to me. You know, if you I work and I get ten a hundred dollars, let's say, I get to keep maybe twenty-three. Wow. And that is just ridiculous, which means you can't imagine that that's the way it is. But it is. So you have to be pretty smart about finances and also focus on your thing. Focus on what you are good at. Don't take any risks with compliance. If you are not an accountant, don't do accountancy. Pay for that. Outsource things that you can't do. But make sure to get paid for for what you're doing. And if no one wants to pay you, find a different business idea. That makes sense to me because I'm absolutely horrible at math. You do not want me as your accountant. And I don't even know if you want me as your cashier. Thankful for computers because they do it all for you now. But no, I, I know exactly what you mean. And if I didn't think that I could do this pretty well, I might not be doing it. But I think that's what really kind of inspired me to go ahead and create a podcast and to start creating content is that I got good feedback. It feels natural. It's like, this is something that I think maybe I can do. So sometimes just knowing yourself is half the battle. I think so too. Um, being an entrepreneur, it's, it's not an easy life. It, but you always learn something new. And for any entrepreneur, you will have some majorly rough patches. There will be many, many times when you question, especially I would say in the first five years. And I think 80% of businesses go out of business in five years. So I'm, I'm not surprised that those were the hardest years. But when you really feel that can I really do this? Is, does this make sense? It's hard. And it also takes longer than you would expect. So you have to really be agile. You have to be focused, but you also have to be smart about what you're doing. And I think I was just fortunate that the EU opened up. There was a lot more movement. There were all these rotational programs. That was pure luck. So I was, I was fortunate. But if that hadn't been the case, I would have had to find something else to do. That somebody would benefit somebody else enough for them to be willing to pay for it. Yeah, I mean, this is one thing that I like about doing this show that I love pointing out is that for some people, they've had to work really hard. They've had to find their passion. Then there's other people that have a story more like yours where everything just kind of fell into place at the right time. And here you are 26 years later and there's all kinds of entrepreneurs. I mean, I did an episode a few days ago of somebody who's not actually an entrepreneur, but is like pretty much the director right below those who created the company and he is basically doing everything except he's not the actual person who created the company. So there are all types of entrepreneurs. It's not just one direct thing. It's not just Bill Gates type of people who have 
you know, ridiculous amounts of money and it's like, you know, how did they get there? So it, it's all types of people that are entrepreneurs and that's one of the big motivations for why I do this show and it's not only opening up my eyes, I hope it opens up other people's eyes and makes them think of the possibilities for themselves and that's what it's all about for me. I think you're you're really spot on and you have to do something that you really enjoy, things that come easy to you. I wouldn't start a company to challenge myself on whatever I'm doing and selling. So I wouldn't start a tech company because that wouldn't be a very good idea. Yeah, um, I wouldn't do that either. No. But um, so, so I think that you have to, a life lesson is swim downstream. Don't fight things that you can't change. Don't get obsessed with doing things that is never going to work out anyway, to make a point or to be right. Or uh, it's much better to do things that you actually enjoy because you, you know, we probably only live once. And if that's the one shot we get, why not try to enjoy it as best we can? And being an entrepreneur, it's a ton of worry. I have definitely had moments when I'm thinking, I'm just going to throw away my office key and never go back, <laughs> you know, or sell the company or close it or, you know, desperate thoughts. It can be totally overwhelming. And one thing, that I think is true for entrepreneurs. You have to stay healthy, you have to stay fit, you have to be in balance as a person. And if you're not, it will affect your company, it will affect your employees, it will affect your clients. So you have to really be the best you at all times. And it's not just for you as a person, it's for everybody around you. Because when it doesn't, you actually put other people's livelihoods on the line. If you're not, uh, you know, on top and and positive about things. Well, I think everything you just said there is really valuable, and I hope that that brings value to others. I think it's terrific advice from somebody who has pretty much seen and done. I won't say all, but a good percentage of all during their career, and. That is segueing me to how can people find you, work with you, and follow you on social media? Um, well, and Immersion is on all social media. We're on Twitter. Uh, we are on Facebook. That's mainly for expats. And, and it's called Immersion, so it's easy to find. And we are on LinkedIn and I am on LinkedIn. So feel free to link with me. We're pretty active on LinkedIn. We uh, foster and cultivate connections and friends and thoughts and inspiration there. So, and we, ha we have gotten to know a lot of people, especially in this pandemic year. So it's my name, it's Lena, L-E-N-A, and Rekdal, R-E-K-D-A-L, and even Swedes, only Norwegians can say that name, actually. <laughs> I yeah, I love that. Right. I, I say it like if you've ever seen Glorious Bastards and you remember uh, Brad Pitt's character trying to talk Italian, 
but he's just this guy, you know, I feel like I said your name just like that, like Red Cow, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so used to it. And my name is Lena and everybody calls me Lena. And I have just come to terms with that aged so many years ago. So it doesn't matter at all. I mean, as long as somebody looks at me, they're probably talking to me, so that's fine. But that's, I would say LinkedIn is the best place to find me. And we also have a contact form on immersion.com website. So that's another way of doing it. Excellent. Well, I feel like we've come up to the end of our time here. I'm sure we could talk more ABBA and lots of other things here. But we are out of time. Lena, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. It was quite a journey, you know, with the, all the interruptions. And I'm even getting interrupted by my cat right now. She's climbing up. She's quiet. <laughs> yeah. No, well, I, I've always wondered. I've never been able to pick up her uh, meowing during an episode. She does meow a lot from time to time but I've never actually heard her so I guess I'm directing Mike in a good direction that you're not hearing her but I digress Lena Redcow immigration and relocation expert founder of global mobility firm Immersion established in 1995 thank you so much for being on Mark My Words it was really educational. I think he brought a lot of value and it was great to chat about global mobility. I learned so much from it and I hope other people learn not only about more about global mobility, but learn about being an entrepreneur. I thought you brought some great insight and advice and thank you for being on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was great. I really awesome. appreciate it. Awesome. Well, that is all we have time for today. I am Mark Schmidt. I'll be back soon with a new episode of Mark My Words. Thank you for tuning in. Bye.